Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. My name is Londi Madonda. I'm doing law, second year. I think funding should be provided by the government, not the universities, because the universities are a business, and a person who's not paying is liable. I think maybe if the state departments should maybe provide funding for students. Like for instance, if you're doing law, you should get funding from the Department of Justice. If your parents, maybe, or your mother is a public servant, maybe a teacher or a nurse, she's paying tax. So why should you pay funding at university? You should be afforded free education because your parents are already paying for it. What comes to mind when I think about university and everything they have to take care of, like their expenses, um, I think of security, of course, um, the cleaning services, hygiene for students, and they have to pay for lectures. Like we have lecturers and I think they are paid by the university, not the government. So I think their expenses for per year, it's like maybe five million, yeah. Some argue that the higher education sector in South Africa is facing a funding crisis. Students brought the issue of fees into the national spotlight in late 2015. And since then, university management and government have been scrambling to come up with solutions. Some have argued that fee-free education is not only necessary, but possible. If you haven't yet, take a listen to episode 3, where we speak to alternative economist Dick Forslund. Today we consider an opposing view, that universities cannot survive and continue to provide quality education without the income derived from student fees. Our guest is Dr. Gerald Wangenge Omar, who is the Director of Institutional Planning at the University of Pretoria. Prior to this, he was an Associate Professor at the University of the Western Cape. In 2012, he served on the Funding Review Committee and contributed to the Minister of Higher Education's Funding Review Report. He's also published research papers on higher education funding. We'll include some links on the episode notes on our website. Okay, so a very warm welcome to today's guest. We have Gerald Wangenge Omar with us, who's Director of Institutional Planning at the University of Pretoria. And Gerald has very kindly agreed to chat to us today about the funding mechanisms for, for universities. So perhaps we can get started with a very kind of general and broad question. From your perspective, sitting as you do within the administration of a South African university, what would you say are the most pressing issues that we need to think about in terms of how higher education is funded in South Africa today. So thank you very much for having me 
the, the finding of higher education, not, not just in South Africa, but, but all over the world, uh, requires that we think about uh, quite a number of fundamental things. The key one is, number one, understanding that higher education is both a public good and it's also a private good in terms of earnings, in terms of possibilities, you know, of getting a job and performing well in life. Now, if you look at it from that premise, then it means that a good way to go about it, and good might be subjective, but one way to go about it would be to to have a situation, as is the case currently in South Africa, where government uh, provides funding, and at the same time, students as private beneficiaries as well provide uh, funding to higher education. Now, the challenge that we have is that those very two critical uh, funders of higher education, which is, you know, the, the government and, and, and students, all their parents, all sponsors, uh, both parties are experiencing difficulty. The state we know in South Africa has not been putting in enough to match both inflation and increasing cost of higher education and the growth in the sector, uh, which has almost doubled in the past 10 years. But at the same time, we know that tuition fees has been growing at levels that suppress uh, uh, household incomes. And so students are struggling, you know, to meet the private costs of higher education. So the big challenge is creating some kind of equilibrium between what the state puts into higher education and what students should pay. Of course, I'm aware that uh, higher education is also supported, um, you know, from the so-called stream income. But from the research that I've done, from the literature that I've looked at, not many universities, even even your Harvards and Stanfords and MITs and Oxfords, uh, start stream income hardly goes into supporting of a university. They are ring-fenced. Uh, uh, it's ring-fenced income it goes into specified projects, you know, which then means that universities have to depend on state funding, of course, as public universities should, and also from their students, their parents, or their sponsors. So do you think it would be fair to describe the current situation as a, as a funding crisis in higher education? And if so, what would you say are the causes of that? Why are universities struggling so much to make ends meet? Uh, those, those are, I think, at least two or three questions uh, in one. Number one, um, are we experiencing a crisis? I'll be a bit more positive and look at each other as an opportunity for South Africa, the entire society, universities, government, and interested parties to rethink the funding of our education, to look back at how we've gone about it, look at the challenges, the issues that uh, students are raising, that society is raising, that, that universities are raising, and, and determine how best to go about it. So I see it as an opportunity. It's, in my view, an opportunity that we should have seized a lot earlier. I know there have been moments uh, over time where we've had uh, conversations uh, around how to fund uh, universities in South Africa, but I think that the fees must fall events have actually, you know, kind of given some kind of agency to those conversations. So I don't see it as a crisis. It's, 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 it's an opportune moment for society to think about how best we should fund uh, universities in South Africa uh, for the simple reason that if you look at the history of South Africa, issues of inequality, issues of social injustice, challenges around getting skills to drive our economy and those kinds of things, those things reinforce the centrality of universities in, in, in driving, you know, 
these countries' socioeconomic advancement. And so this is a very important opportunity to think about that, not just about funding, but also how, how, how best do we uh, utilize our universities to drive the socioeconomic advancement to the country. But when you look at uh, the issues that are being raised, there are quite a number of uh, fundamental things there, which goes back to the initial question that I asked, how best should we fund universities, you know, from uh, university managers or universities in general? They're saying, look, we're not getting sufficient funding from the state. And the data seems to support that claim. If you look at the data, state funding in the past several years has been declining in real time. The cost of, of higher education has gone up. Uh, a lot of the materials that universities use uh, are imported from outside in terms of books, the subscriptions, you know, uh, the rand has declined in its value against the major currencies. So if you look at the laboratory equipments, if you look at the, the books, subscri- I mean, journal subscriptions and those kinds of things, you know, the costs are going up very high. But at the same time, we understand that the South African economy has not been performing very well. We, uh, we take taking on more debt just to keep things going. And so understandably, we're not saying that the state is sitting with money that is not uh, giving to universities. So, so as well as uh, society as well, you know, that the students who, who go to universities in South Africa, their families, their sponsors, also struggling. One could say maybe we should rethink the cost structure of universities. Maybe that could be a way out. Some would say maybe the problem with these NISFAs, and we know there are many problems with the National Student Financial Aid Scheme. The approaches they are using, we know that from about 2009, the collections have been declining. You know, we've had some political leaders talking about university graduates that they have among their staff who are not repaying these first. So the, the challenges are, are big and they go beyond just universities or government on these first. It's, they're quite broad. Okay, so we're, we're in a situation where we're facing some real challenges with respect to how universities find the funds in order to operate. And you've outlined some of those. Uh-huh. You've mentioned that some argue that it might be necessary for us to rethink the cost structure of a university. Yes. Could you elaborate on that and explain to to listeners what you mean by that? So what are the main costs that are involved in running a university and how might those be rethought in ways that could be progressive and contribute to that vision of the university as a kind of public institution, which you've hinted at a little bit? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, of course. You know, your, your last point about, you know, uh, the, the, the university performing a public good, that's quite critical, you know, uh, producing skills, producing graduates who, who, who appreciate the value of diversity and those kinds of things. Very, very important. Now, what are the key cost components of a university's cost structure? The key one, the main one, which accounts for over 50% of university costs, and I suspect in any university, would be salaries. A university is a labor-intensive enterprise. Uh, uh, you have to get professors in to teach, you need lecturers in to teach, you need people to do research, you need people to, to, to run your workshops, you need people to do your security, you need people to manage your grounds, you know, and those kinds of things. But the, the, the so-called, uh, you know, teaching and research staff, your professors, uh, they're very expensive. If you look at uh, many universities, a lot of them would, would be spending more than 50% of their budgets. In certain instances, 65%, even 70% on paying their staff. Uh, uh, it varies from university to universities. It's a competitive situation. Every university is competing for them. And, and naturally, it makes these people very expensive. The other thing is that 
You know, unlike in industry, if you look at industry, the salaries there grow depending on the output, depending on the bottom line. For universities, they're not in a money-making kind of thing, but they're competing with these industries as well for their top staff. You know, um, our, our, our universities of technology, for instance, the engineers they want to, to employ to teach at these universities are the same engineers that the mining industries want. They're the same engineers that the, the construction industry is looking for. And so naturally, you almost have to increase the salaries of these people. I mean, no way suggesting that, that, that universities, you know, uh, just increase salaries for no reason, but they're, they're operating in a very, very competitive space. So that's the key one. Then you've got the other things that that uh, universities, like any other enterprises, will spend on. You know, issues around security, issues around a municipal costs, you know, electricity and and those kinds of things. Uh, uh, but a key one again, things like uh, journal subscriptions, you know, very expensive, especially in the past couple of years. You know, where the rand uh, has has declined against the major currencies, in which you know these things are, are trading in. You know, the, the the journal subscriptions we we pay for them in dollars and pounds and those kinds of things. So naturally, it makes uh, universities uh, to try to spend a, a, a lot more. But we need again to differentiate the cost structures here, depending on location. If you look at universities like Venda, for instance, if you look at universities like Fort Hare, you know, if you look at rural universities, roads, for example, where it's located, then you understand that, you know, in certain instances, some universities have to provide primary and secondary schools for the children or their staff, because where they're located, there's no school around them. To be able to attract very skilled people in some of these spaces, you need to provide them with some incentives. You know, an university like, say, Vates or Pretoria, we don't feel, really need to worry so much about the Internet. Why? Because when the Pretoria uh, or Johannesburg authorities are laying their fiber networks, those things are going to go, you know, uh, 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 probably through the university or across the gate from the university. So the university does not have to spend much to tap into it. For an university like, say, Fort Hare or Venda, you know, the, the nearest point would be probably 30 kilometers away. And so if you have to tap into that, you have to lay extra fibers in it. But an university like Venda and Fort Hare, it's, it's totally different. The other thing that we must understand is um, an university like uh, Cape Town, you know, it's, it's a research-intensive university. And so the kind of equipment that they need, they need very sophisticated equipment to be able to maintain that research intensity. Those things cost a lot of money. And now the challenge that universities are sitting with is, as, as I've already explained, the key benefactor, the state, the funding from the exchequer is not rising uh, at a level where universities will be able to meet their costs very easily. And what universities have done from, from the data that we've looked at in the past about 10 years, as state funding has gone down, student funding of fees has gone up. So I wouldn't see it, uh, I wouldn't look at it in terms of it being fair or not. It's, it's almost an existential question for universities. How are they going to operate? The other source of course that we say is mainstream income, which, which uh, I've had a lot of people saying that it's, it's an option that universities uh, could explore. Yes, universities can explore that, and universities are in fact. Now, from some of the studies that, that we've looked at, a very negligible percentage, about 6-7% of what universities generate from their mainstream income, goes into supporting the operational costs of universities. 
because a lot of this money is already locked in. You're giving money to University X and saying this money is only for bursaries for students who are going to study this program. It's you giving money and saying this is for putting up an archive or something like that, or supporting the library. Or this is going to be for research on heart disease. So it's not money that universities could easily put into running the operations, you know, paying salaries and, 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 and paying municipal bills and those kinds of things. But, so it's a big challenge. The point for me is that if universities are going to be able to provide high-quality education, which they should. I don't think any university should provide mediocre education. If universities are going to perform top-notch research, they need resources. And, and these resources have to come from somewhere. They have to come from uh, students. They have to come from the state. They have, come, they have to come from uh, uh, other benefactors as well. From what I understand, part of the, the problem or the opportunity, as you put it, that we're facing at the moment is that state funding of the higher education sector has declined in real terms since 1994. Yes. And one of the ways in which universities have tried to deal with that shortfall is through increasing fees. And that, of course, was the, the flashpoint that caused the, the huge student uprising that we saw in October last year. Yes. So many students are claiming that they shouldn't have to pay fees in order to attend a university, that that very practice turns the university into an exclusive and elite institution that, that excludes the poor from the opportunities that education provides. So if we take that argument for a moment and accept that it's fair, is the solution then to get more funding from the state? What are some of the repercussions that might result from an increase in state funding to universities? Look, let's go back to the question of paying fees. It's, it's, that, that's a very difficult question, especially if you look at the history of this country and if you look at the post-apartheid development uh, imperative, you know, issues around social justice and all that. Now, the thing is, and there's, there's overwhelming evidence, you know, that countries uh, overseas and in Africa, um, a fee-free higher education regime for all is actually regressive because we know from the evidence that the majority and we've seen that also here in South Africa, of students who go to, to university are students largely from middle-class backgrounds, you know, students who would have paid uh, hefty amounts of fees to go to secondary, uh, good secondary schools, students whose parents can at least afford a portion of, of uh, tuition fees that universities charge. So, so I just thought I should clarify that. So just make it free for all, then it becomes actually very, very regressive. Having said that, uh, should, should the state put in a lot of money into, into higher education? Of course, if the money is there, yes. But the point I would want to make is that probably we need to rethink, you know, the, 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 the overall strategy with regard to how universities or specifically students are funded. But let me start with the point of state funding. Of course, like I said, you know, for the past about 10 years, We've seen enrollments growing at a faster rate than the funding that we get from governments. We, from government, we've seen uh, state funding year on year declining in real terms. You know, if you just look at the numbers nominally, the numbers are quite impressive. If you look at inflation and all that, then we're experiencing a decline. And so, if the state could then increase uh, its its funding of higher education, then the expectation would be that universities should then not increase the fees at the levels at which they've been increasing. 
you and I, that the state is not sitting on, on huge sums of money, you know, that it could easily pump into higher education. As I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, our borrowing, our borrowing is almost going through the roof. And so we know that economically we're not doing very well. It's not only higher education that is asking for state funding. Infrastructure development, which is equally important for this country, requires state funding. Security requires state funding. We're experiencing, we've experienced a horrible drought. Some parts of the country are still experiencing uh, these droughts. Agricultural development is also looking at government and, and a range of other things. And so we need a balance. I'm in no way trying to suggest that uh, um, rob from this one and fund this one or take away from this one, is how do you strike an equilibrium? Another thing, possibility that we might want to pursue, which, which the fee-free um, uh, uh, trusting for the poor considered, is where working-class students or, or you know, students from disadvantaged backgrounds study for free at the point of entry. And for free here does not mean that it's free if they get full funding. It's some kind of uh, deferred payment. So when, when they go to university at the point of entry, they study for free, but once they've graduated, they pay that. And I was giving the example of Australia's higher education contribution scheme. I'm in no way suggesting that we go for it as is. I'm just giving an example of something that we might want to look at and explore possibilities in terms of how it could fit into our own context. And now, now what the higher education contributions uh, scheme in Australia is designed to do is to ensure access to all students, regardless of socioeconomic background. And so what happens is that all students who are eligible, you know, or who meet university entry requirements, either pay their tuition fees upfront directly to their universities. That is, if they can afford to pay it, those who can afford, you pay at the point of entry. And what the Australians have done is those who can pay, they get a 20% discount. It's like an incentive to encourage a lot more students who can afford to pay upfront to pay upfront. But those who cannot afford to pay, they don't pay. The government pays for them through a NISFAS-like mechanism. And, and in fact, their, their loans are charged a zero real interest rate. But the important point here is that those who can pay, pay. They get a discount as an incentive for them to pay. And those who cannot pay, you know, the state pays for them. And, and, and once they have graduated and they start working and they start earning, just like NISFAS does, then they start paying back. Now, the thing with that system is that it assumes your graduates, beneficiaries of state funding support are going to get jobs. We know that we've got a bit of a problem with unemployment. So that's one way one could go about it. The other approach that some have suggested is, is what you might want to call a distributive uh, tuition fee model. When I was doing my PhD, I spoke to university finance offices and one of them, of a top institution, told me, look, when we send admission letters and fee structures to some of our parents, they call back to ask if it is a typo, you know, because we're asking for 60, 50,000, yet they paid almost double that amount for their kids in secondary school. And they're wondering, hey, excuse me, sir, is there a typo here? Is, is it real 60,000 or 50,000? And now that, therein lies the challenge. Some families in this country, the fees that universities are charging is peanuts, okay? Yet, 
For some others, it's terribly expensive. And of course, you and I understand that given the inequalities that we have in this country, some of our students cannot pay any amount of fees. And so one of the approaches that has been suggested is a redistributive tuition fee model. And those who cannot pay, they don't pay. You know, from the 100,000 rand, take 20,000 to support this other guy who cannot pay. Of course, the counter argument to that would be that university is already doing that, which is true of uh, our universities, um, have what they call internal bursary schemes. So you've outlined some, some interesting points here that we need to be thinking creatively about funding models. And we need to be thinking perhaps about sliding scales of fees. We need to be thinking about asking those who can afford to pay more to pay more in order to subsidize those who can't afford to pay. So what I'm getting from from what you've outlined so far is that you see it as pretty much unsustainable to imagine that universities could function without fees in some form or another. And you're arguing that we need to rethink how we, we cover the costs in ways that are more just and that allow for more access, but that we can't actually do away with fees altogether. I couldn't have said it any better. You, you captured it. You captured it. From the research that we've done, from the experiences, what we've seen in Africa in countries with a, a fee-free uh, model is that, well, you don't charge fees, but the state does not give you enough for you to be able to offer good education. I'm in no way suggesting that universities should keep increasing tuition fees, but tuition fees are an extremely important source of income for universities to be able to provide a good quality education, especially in a system like South Africa, which is massifying, currently sitting at about 20% participation rate. If you look at those other countries, especially in Africa, where they're not charging fees, they're sitting at 5%, they're sitting, that, that's Kenya and, and Mozambique, they're sitting at almost 2% in Malawi, you know, so those are very elite systems where just very few people go to university. That's interesting. I haven't heard that argument before that actually the fee structure may allow for more participation than is currently realized. I mean, the argument we're hearing from kind of the other side of the debate is saying that, no, we need to eliminate fees in order to make education more accessible and to massify more successfully. But you're saying that there are some examples from our neighboring countries where, in fact, the opposite has been the case. Another good example is the UK. Remember, many African universities, of course, who are British colonies, the tuition-free regime is something that was borrowed from continental Europe. For many years, European universities did not charge fees. You know? The UK had to introduce fees. They started with 9,000, and again, the motivation was the same. State funding alone is not going to open up more spaces. For, for millions to go in. So we need to introduce a tuition-free regime so, as, uh, 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 so that we can be able to open up. And so the point is, if you're going to rely solely on government, then you're not going to massify. You're not going to be able to provide a very good quality education. People are going to say, you know, Germany has a, a, a fee-free, a tuition-free regime. But that's a different story there. You know, we'll be comparing oranges and apples if we just say, oh, Norway, and therefore we should have. We can have that discussion uh, uh, some other time. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting set of arguments, but I still can't help but go back to the arguments that the student movement makes about the fact that the, the very existence of fees, and, you know, £9,000 in the UK is a huge amount, and many protested those increases. Yes. And, you know, whether it's thirty or 50000 or 60000 depending on the degree here in South Africa, there are still many academically talented and deserving young people 
who have no way of covering those costs in addition to the costs of subsistence and living. So in a sense, the fees do seem to serve as a very powerful symbolic and you know, financial barrier to many people accessing university education. Look, you're 100% right. Behavioral economists have told us that working class students are very sensitive to any kinds of fees. Take loans, in many cases, uh, they won't even qualify for those loans because they don't have security and those kinds of things. So if you're looking at students, especially students from working class backgrounds, it, it kind of, you know, creates these, these mental, this thing is beyond me. I, I cannot access high education. So you're 100% right. It, in fact, negates uh, uh, our, our social justice goals because you leave out many people. But how do you overcome that? I don't think, I might be wrong, but I don't think we've done a good job in sense society. But number one, we've got these systems in place. Of course, as we already pointed out, some of those systems are not working optimally. The National Student Financial Aid Scheme is a, is a case in point. And so naturally, students get frustrated. If the system that is supposed to provide us with some measure of safety is not is dysfunctional, so where are we going to go to? So they're left with no options. Universities also do offer uh, bursaries. Of course, those bursaries cannot, I mean, they cannot address the demand on a large scale, but at least that is there. But the point that needs to be made to our students while they're in secondary school is that there are mechanisms in place, but it's not enough to tell students or prospective university students if the mechanism in place is dysfunctional. It has to be straightened up. It has to be made to operate optimally. It has to give hope to students that you can get assistance if you go to this uh, institution. So some very strong arguments you're making about how the efficacy almost of the financial support system need to be addressed. Do you think that's the, the task of government or of universities? Both. Um, I mean, I know the Department of Education is doing an audit of the the, 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 the NISFAS uh, scheme. You know, they're looking at financial aid offices, universities. The means testing is not the same. You know, different universities use different measures to determine need, and we we're hearing a lot of things that are happening in some of those offices where students should not receive funding, actually receive the funding, and those who deserve funding do not receive it. So universities have got a very important role to play. The same thing with NISFAS itself. The example that I gave you, if you look at the repayments, you know, they have declined very drastically from 2009. And according to Treasury's calculations, they only collected $248 million. You know, in 20, 2005, they collected 329 So we have to address some of these obvious inefficiencies to be able to address this. So it's not just the university thing. It's, it's the university, you know, they have to do their means tests very well. They have to run their financial aid offices very well. When, when they're setting fees as well, they must understand that they're dealing with students. Some of their students come from financially disadvantaged backgrounds. The same thing with NISFAS. They need to fix the inefficiencies. They need to up their game, you know, improve their connections. The same thing with government as well. They need to put money into NISFAS. My thinking is probably some of the funding that goes into what you call this funding that, uh, uh, that the Ministry of Social Development receives to support. Um, the social development grants? The grants, yes, the social development grants, you know. My view, and probably it's an unpopular view, if some of that money, uh, social grants, can be put into NISPAS to support students into, into universities to get a good education, you know, and, and get out of uh, poverty and, and, and contribute to the advancement of tea, you know, that could be something that we might want to consider. Yeah. So taking into account everything we've discussed and taking into account your own position as someone who works within a university administration in order to kind of plan the way forward, 
What do you think awaits us in the next couple of years in the higher education sector in South Africa? Do you have a an optimistic or a pessimistic or a pragmatic view of the challenges that lie ahead? What do you think are some of the key things that university managers, but also academic staff who are, you know, we're the ones just kind of trying to do our jobs on a day-to-day basis to teach our students and et cetera. What are some of the things you think we all need to be aware of and take into account in the next couple of years that lie ahead? Look, since October last year, with the fees must fall protest, you know, that was a very watershed uh, moment. Things are not going to stay the same. Now, the situation that we are in currently is akin to purgatory for Catholics. You don't know whether you are headed to hell or heaven, in the sense that there's there's uncertainty. There's quite a lot that is happening, you know, the judicial testing that was set by the president. I know the CHE is also working on some framework. We don't know whether the fees that we're going to propose are going to be accepted. We don't know whether students are going to reject that again and go back to the streets. We don't know whether government is going to decree that we offer education for free or, again, we don't increase fees. You know, a lot of uh, universities are are experiencing difficulties. It was not just uh, the the fees must fall. It was also the insourcing thing. So it's, it's a situation, and I'm sure I'm speaking for the entire sector, it's a situation of uncertainty. Universities are having to deal with uh, these vulnerabilities. So, of course, universities are having to plan around that. One might want to think of areas where we could improve our own efficiencies, you know. As much as NISPAS is not performing optimally, I don't think all our universities are also performing uh, optimally. There are areas that we could tighten a bit and, and save and all that. Uh, some people have said maybe think about uh, offering, you know, expanding distance education. Uh, maybe that's an option. But some of the literature that I've looked at suggests that for you to be able to give a good quality distance education, it's also going to cost you good amounts of money. So, so look, you know, uh, it's it's a very uncertain situation that universities are, are looking at, uh, are facing. The unions are still asking for salary hikes for their for their members. The journals, you know, those that we pay for for journals uh, are still increasing. Uh, electricity is going up, and, and and other things are also going up. Last year, when the universities had to use some of their money to meet the shortfall, and if, again, there's going to be another moratorium, it's, it's going to be problematic. I don't want to, to sound pessimistic, but I just don't see how universities to remain as vibrant knowledge institutions that would good quality uh, teaching and perform top-notch research if we do not... Um, uh, uh, get uh, at least an increase in the funding that we have. Whether it's going to be from government or whether it's going to be from students, I don't think we can do without it. The situation is going to get dire, in my view, if again we have another year where we do not increase fees and where government funding does not grow enough to um, kind of com- compensate for, for, for the decrease in tuition fee revenue. What would your advice be to academic staff who have just heard you map out this quite challenging and uncertain immediate future? Those of us who are not involved in institutional planning or management, those of us who day-to-day work with students in teaching and in research, what would your advice be to academic staff and how to weather the storm or how they may somehow be able to contribute to solving some of these challenges? That's a tough one. You know, look, I still wear my academic hat. In my view, I think uh, the leadership of our universities need to take academics in their confidence and have an honest conversation 
with academics about the situation. You know, uh, very honestly, I'd not be able to 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 subscribe to as many journals as we used to. We might not be able to send you out to conferences as as we used to. You know, we might not be able to do following one, two, three, four, five things. The lab, laboratory that you wanted, and we might not be able to expand it. A shared understanding across the board of the situation and bring them on board as partners. Once you're on the same page, then this understanding, in my view, would you know kind of diffuse across the universities. My sense is if, if you explained to students. Students are very level-headed people. They're very reasonable people. And then they become partners in terms of finding solutions. Stuff as well. The point I made earlier, even with this difficult financial situation, you know, our unions, and justifiably so probably, are still asking for salary hikes. And the negotiations, you know, they're still as tough as they were before. So I think we need to have a shared understanding across the board, the university leadership, academics, uh, non-academic staff, students. We need, we need a shared understanding of the situation so that uh, we can collectively think of how to go about it. Or uh, once we agree on, on how we want to proceed, those solutions should not become the basis of you know, destabilizing the system. For instance, uh, one would have expected, for instance, when you said we're not increasing fees, Maybe there's going to be a moratorium as well on salary increases for both academic and non-academic staff. As I mentioned already, engage with, with, with academics. Should we continue with the, the subscriptions, for instance, you know, of all the journals that we're subscribing to? Or should we you know, discontinue some subscriptions? Should we uh, pull together our resources, the different universities? The question becomes, and I know, you know, uh, service providers have got their own rules, but is there a possibility that University X, Y, and Z can pull together instead of all of them subscribing to the same journals? Of course, like I said, I know, you know, that uh, their own rules that at times do not allow for this kind of thing. But we live in a situation that we're creative and innovative uh, approaches. We live collaboration across the system. Universities more than ever before are going to have to start working together and, and think of ways, you know, differentiation, for example, is going to become a very important debate. Is it sustainable that universities in the same region should offer the same expensive programs? Or should we now say, let's allow this university in this region to offer so that we can now focus on these other programs to minimize the costs? But, but like I said, we need a conversation that brings on board everyone, students, you know, staff, both teaching and non-teaching or academic, non-academic staff, you know, the leadership of these institutions. Let's agree, accept that we're facing a challenge and get some kind of buy-in. We've not gotten to a point where there is a shared understanding of the difficulty. There's, there's mutual suspicion. You know, students are suspicious of the university. Academics are suspicious of, of, of uh, the management. The management does not feel like, you know, academics really understand the challenges that it's facing. And students don't seem to fully understand the difficulties that the university is, is, is facing. So, look, there's no magic bullet here, in my view. Of course. Yes. No yes. magic bullet, but a, a huge need for ongoing dialogue within and across institutions, which I think is a Absolutely. really important point that you've made. Uh-huh. Great. So I'm, I'm sure we've taken up the full quota of time that we um, alloc- that you allocated for us. Was there anything else that you wanted to just add? Anything you didn't have a chance to say? 
I think we've had a really wide-ranging discussion, which has really given us some insight. Yes. yes. No, the, one, the one thing that I'd like to add is whatever solution that we go for, we should never, ever compromise quality. We should never, ever compromise research. We should never put the future of our university in jeopardy. Universities are very, very important institutions. They play a central role in the advancement of this society and any other society. You know, we're talking about a knowledge economy. If you want to perform well as a knowledge economy, we need universities that produce, you know, high-level knowledge that provides quality education. And so whatever solution that we go for, it shouldn't be one that actually would jeopardize the quality of both teaching and research. I'm sure most academic staff listening to you will agree with you on that point, absolutely. Thank you. How should higher education in South Africa be funded? This is a vexed question that, according to Gerald Wangenge Omar, requires collaboration and understanding between students, staff, university managers and government. Scrapping fees altogether is, he says, unrealistic and could in fact lead to declining academic standards, as well as a narrowing rather than broadening of education. What do you think some of the solutions are to the funding crisis? We welcome your feedback through the usual channels. Hi, my name is Madiel. I'm studying mine engineering at VETS. I'm in second year this year. I think it's not fair for to tell a child in primary school that education is very vital for your future, but then when they're in metric, you have to tell them you have to pay a certain hundred thousand of friends to further their career. My opinion about the funding in South Africa is that a certain percentage of the taxpayers' money should go to universities. It's a priority. But, but I think that we are more focused on fixing roads, e-tolls, and that sort of stuff. We don't focus on the main issues. Most, most of the students that go to universities are from poor backgrounds. So by that, by that, by that assumption, I don't think they'll be able to, to afford the fees. If there are more fees to be paid, there'll be less students. Less students means less money coming to the university. So, yeah. A certain percentage should come from the government. Sponsors, Bazari uh, people, NASFAS. If like I'm doing mining, maybe Anglo Platinum could like have their own department at, the, at uh, like universities. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungile Benyane. Thanks to Professor Gerald, Wangenge Oma, Londi and Madiela for their time, as well as David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles. <laughs>